Blog Talk Radio. Morning and welcome to Three Women Three Ways. It's a show that kind of tackles some difficult topics sometimes, and today we have a, I think, particularly difficult topic. It is uh, a topic where we're talking about children and children who are being abused. And um, I just, you know, this is probably one of the the most heart-wrenching topics we ever have uh, when we talk about child sexual abuse. We're talking about that today with an expert. Eric Jones is not only a survivor, but he's spent his life working to uh, help rectify the situation and improve things for children who have been abused. Eric, welcome. Good morning, Heather. It's it's great to be here. Thank you for the opportunity. You're welcome. Tell us a little bit about your background and how you came to this work. Well, as you've already indicated to the audience, uh, I am a survivor of child sexual abuse. And it's somewhat rare in today's society for males to identify that they are survivors, but I think it's so important that we do so because while there's a perception that when children are abused, it tends to be uh, girls or females, that's not always the case. And there are a lot more boys than you would believe that are actually affected by it. So I decided a number of years ago that in order for me to have what I want, which is a national dialogue on child sexual abuse and on sexual assault, um, I need to be part of that conversation. So that's kind of what brings me here today. I'm also the survivor support director for a local Portland area nonprofit, Restore Hope. And what we try to do is find robust tools and devices so that survivors can find healing uh, after they've had their abuse, whether they're male or female. So it's really great to be here today. I, I commend you and your audience for taking up this subject. If you're right, it is not an easy subject but it's an incredibly important subject. And, uh, you know, we'll talk in just a couple minutes about some of the dynamics of child sexual abuse, and you can you can learn how bad it is in our society today. Yeah, you know, I think you, you talk about it, it's difficult for uh, oftentimes some adult men to identify as survivors. I think it's getting difficult for anyone to identify as a survivor of anything, unless it's like an auto wreck or a mass shooting. Um, we don't want to hear about people who've lived through major trauma in their lives. We, I, I, what I, this is what I have noticed anyway. You can correct me if you feel differently. But I see it with domestic violence survivors. I see it with any, almost any kind of trauma survivors, except those public ones, um, where people don't want to hear it. They want you to just get over it, you know, move on. It's time to forgive and forget and move on, blah, blah, blah. Is that, do you find that in the area of child sexual abuse, or is that different for that, that kind of public gut reaction? Is that different for children, uh, adults who are abused as children? I think it's absolutely true that it's a, a conversation that we as Americans don't want to have, and that's part of the problem. Um, so I, I would agree to some extent to what you're saying, but I, I think when it comes to health issues, which this really is, this really affects a survivor's health for their entire lifetime, and people have no idea how much that actually occurs. There is a couple of analogies that I'd like to use. Um, one of them is is um, I, I lost my first wife to cancer 13 years ago, and I volunteered with the American Cancer Society and the Cancer Action Network for about uh, 13 years. And what I learned is, is that about 100 years ago, cancer was, kind of in the closet. It, you know, people didn't talk about it if they had cancer. They didn't even want it on their death certificate, frankly. There was a lot of stigma. There was concern that it was contagious and people would suddenly come down with cancer. We've come a long way since that period of time in our history. Right now, we actually celebrate survivors. Uh, if you're familiar with Relay for Life uh, from the yeah. American Cancer Society, we actually, so survivors today can not only say, I'm a survivor of cancer, but I am, you know, I'm proud to be a survivor. AIDS, about 40 years ago, HIV AIDS was in the same, same boat. Uh, it, it, it appeared that people didn't want to discuss that topic. There was a lot of misinformation going around about how contagious it was and, and you know, the lifestyle of the folks that contracted it that were turned out to not be correct. 
But now, 40 years later, we're at a point where those survivors, while not at the level that cancer survivors are, are also now much more better supported and, um, and helped in our society. One of my goals and one of Restore Hope's goals is to bring the, the, out of the proverbial closet, bring the topic of child sexual abuse out of that closet and make it something where survivors not only can disclose that they were abused and that they're now surviving, but that they're actually celebrated. Hey, good for you. It's, it's wonderful that you've actually survived something that difficult and you're, you're doing really well and congratulations. So, well, and I um, think you bring out a good point that, you know, surviving trauma and experiencing trauma, um, it, 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 the fact that you can move on and and create your life in a productive and, and useful and, and reasonably happy way is a real difficulty. There are not only physical and emotional, but, uh, you know, there there are brain changes when people experience trauma. So it's not just a matter of, uh, you know, getting, you know, strong-willed and just getting past this. Um, survive, you know, but getting past a, a major trauma like this is a huge deal, and I'm not sure people appreciate all that. I think you're absolutely right, Heather, and, and there's a, a piece that a lot of people don't, I think, really realize, and that is that when children's brains are developing, and they, they actually continue developing, most people don't realize it, or, or some people anyway, that until you're 25 years old, the adolescent brain keeps developing. So Every mother have, knows this. Well, yeah, that's, yeah I, I stand corrected. I think you're absolutely right. They do know. Uh, but But when you have... And it's usually repeated. The abuse is typically not a one-time situation. It usually happens again and again. So when you have repeated episodes of trauma on a developing brain, one of two things happens. Either the, the software, to use a, um, you know, a computer analogy, uh, either the software is rewritten or it's written in a completely different way than it would have been normally had the abuse or the trauma never taken place. So it is, it's very problematic for survivors, and, and that's, it leads into some of the, the issues like there is no universal list of signs and symptoms and outcomes from child sexual abuse because everyone's different, everyone's abuse dynamics are different, and it just it, it really makes for a complex situation. Uh, as an analogy, I'm a diabetic, and diabetics may know that there are so many factors that control what your morning glucose number is going to be, and you can do the same thing, the same routine for 30 days, and your numbers will still differ. And it's the same kind of thing with child sexual abuse is that, you, you know, just because people have undergone abuse, the, the dynamics are different. And so the, the numbers, the outcomes, and the, the fallout, as I call it, is going to be different. Well, and how prevalent is child sexual abuse? Child sexual abuse is, there's, a, there's been a debate for a number of years about exactly how bad it is. What we do know is that it, it's really pretty prevalent. And so I have some, some numbers that I put together for your audience so they can kind of gauge for themselves uh, how serious an issue this is. Um, it is the most prevalent and most serious uh, health issue for children uh, with the biggest array of consequences, uh, which is pretty stark. That's pretty amazing when you think about it because there are a lot of other things. I mean, children do get cancer. Children, of course, you know, they have accidents. There are a lot of things that happen. But um, it is the most prevalent and serious illness, or not illness, but uh, health condition in a face. About 400,000 babies per year during their lifetime that are born into the U.S. are going to face child sexual abuse. And that's pretty How stark. Many? Some estimates, 400,000. Holy cow. Yeah. That's it's, astonishing. It's just, that's some of these numbers are absolutely horrific. Um, estimates change year by year, but as many as 90,000 per year children in the United States will face child sexual abuse. Now, the numbers... Now, uh, go ahead. Uh, are we all... When you say, what do we mean by child sexual abuse? Do we always mean some adult perpetrating some sort of intercourse with a child, or what are we talking about? Are we talking about molestation? Or what are we talking about when we, we talk about child sexual abuse? That's a good question, Heather, and thanks for asking it. Um, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to use the, the government's, the federal government's uh, definition from the Child Abuse Prevention and Treatment Act amended in 1996. And what it is is it's using persuasion, enticement, or other inducements 
to coerce a child to engage in sexually explicit conduct or simulation of sexual acts. Now, there's a lot that goes with that, and you know that, and it can involve either uh, heterosexual or homosexual um, intercourse. It can in- involve penetration by objects, masturbation, voyeurism, and exhibitionism, unwanted touching or kissing, even uh, the display or involvement in pornography. Certainly, rape and sex trafficking are considered part of child sexual abuse. And as just kind of a caveat, there's no universal um, system for defining it, really. Some jurisdictions have a minimum age for sexual activity with minors. Others take into account age differences between uh, participants in uh, sexual activity. The laws vary by, you know, by state, by local jurisdiction, by the federal government, and then around the world. So there is no true universal definition of what child sexual abuse is. But to be perfectly honest, the, the short version of that definition is that it's something that's horribly terrific, most often traumatic to the child that, uh, that experiences it. And it's something that comes with lifelong and long-term health and emotional consequences. It really, um, in Oregon, for example, they just removed some of the uh, statute of limitations on child crimes, on child sex crimes. And I support that because if you think about it, in a way you have kind of murdered a child's innocence and their life when you undertake child sexual abuse and sexual assault of children. Um, and so I think there should be consequences at any time when, when you know, someone is caught and they need to be held accountable for their actions. But it is so it's a very complex what, what issue. They used to, what they used to do legally, and I, I'm speaking just totally as a layman, I, I have no idea whether this is, you know, the accuracy of what I'm saying, but I know the general idea. Uh, it used to be that, okay, a, a person realized or, or a person was sexually assaulted as a child and it, they just spent their lives either trying to forget it or um, not even realizing that it was, you know, anything wrong because, of course, they're being told that there's no, it's not wrong. It's just society that doesn't like it, you know, that kind of thing. Um, and then at some point in their early adulthood, they may realize, wait a minute, this was actual abuse, da 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 Well, then if they want to report it and do something about it, it was, well, when did it happen? Because if it was more than X number of years, then too bad, so sad, statute of limitations, you can't do anything about it. Even though it, they, they didn't really realize it, they didn't really have the information to assess it until years later. So is that That's what you're saying now, that, that they're, they're in Oregon anyway, they're, they're changing those rules so that people have more of a, a chance to um, – reach the, the stage of understanding and then more time from there to uh, press charges and do something about it? Yes, that's absolutely correct. Uh, it used to be in Oregon that the cap was age 30, for example, on prosecuting a sexual perpetrator, um, and that's now been removed on, on some of the crimes. I don't think on all of them. What happens with sexual abuse victims uh, is, is often in both genders is they, they can – repress or stuff those memories into the recesses of their mind and not and try to not address it. The problem when you do that is it keeps coming up. There are things called trauma triggers where things happen and they recall something in your mind that, you know, uh, produces a trigger, a response that is similar to what happened when you were undergoing the abuse. And there are other things like that, uh, that, that occur. And so it's really important that, um, Whenever those those memories surface, and they can come at any time, or they may never come. So I'm I'm actually an example of that. I've repressed all the specific memories of my abuse, which happened over several years, several different times. Um, if those come back to me, you know, at this point, I might be able to go after the perpetrator or perpetrators if they're still alive, and I'm inclined to do that. But it's it's something that. Males in particular tend to not even begin to address the fact that they were abused until they're in their 40s or 50s. So by wow. then, the statute of limitations used to be 30, so you'd missed the mark by, you know, 10 to 20 years. So you had no opportunity to hold the perpetrator accountable in any way unless you were to try to go after them through a civil suit, and that's more difficult because you don't have – if you don't have any law enforcement behind you or any, you know, any uh, – 
I'm, I'm trying to think how to say that. If you don't have that kind of support coming from the other side of the legal system, it's more difficult to take a personal case into court and then win something. So, well, yeah, if you don't have that legal stuff, you don't amazing. have the validation, the official validation that this is. Yeah, uh, absolutely. That, that this is actually something that happened. It's just your yeah, word against his kind of thing. Exactly, that's exactly right. And you don't have any, you know, of the quote, um, you know, the the investigation that's done by by the professionals to just make sure the that there's something that actually happened. So. Uh, it makes it so much easier now with this law change for folks to be held accountable for their actions later on. And then it takes some of the pressure off of the survivors, both male and female, when their memories get to a point where they want to do something or they get to a point, you know, they may have had memories for a while, but it takes a while to get to a point where you actually want to address it. Because frankly, as I think many of your listeners know, Heather, the legal system does not do well with child sexual abuse cases. And and, and sometimes... <laughs> Can actually can actually re-victimize the victim as part of that process. Yeah. There are a number of perpetrators that either get just a slap on the hand or nothing at all, and in the meantime, the, the victim has had to tell their story over and over, and it, they just basically become re-victimized. So, it's it's a difficult system. The system I think is getting better, but we still have a long way to go. Our legal system is in no sense perfect. We don't really, in my mind, we don't have a justice system when it comes to this topic. We have a legal system, and it really comes down to who has the best attorney and who can make the best arguments. Yeah, I always say it comes to the most paper. Whoever generates the most paper is the winner. Yes, you may well be right. <laughs> and the one with the most money can generate the most the most paper, you know. Yes, um, yes that's right. Okay. So let's open this up. We we do have we can take calls. So if you're listening and you would like to ask a question of Eric or uh, share with us a comment that you have on this topic, we'd love to hear from you. And that phone number, that call in number, I have to scroll down here. Here we go: six four six three seven eight zero four three zero. That's six four six three seven eight. 0430. So give us a phone call. Join our conversation. Um, if you want to uh, stay quiet, you don't like the telephone, that's fine. Jump over to our chat room. I have the chat room open. I see we have several guests there. Uh, let me open it up for the comments. And um, go ahead and, and type in your comments to the chat room, and I will share them with Eric. Okay, Eric, thank you so much. So we've talked about the the... Uh, uh, proliferation of child sexual abuse. And, of course, there's a long history. I mean, throughout history there have been some cultures, I'm thinking like of the Romans or the Greeks, I can't remember which, um, that 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 child sexual abuse was a, a perfectly acceptable way for adult men to behave. I mean, so throughout history cultures have, have viewed this differently, haven't they? Yes, they have, and in fact, some still do today. Uh, it's much more acceptable in some cultures than it is, uh, fortunately, even in the United States. The problem with the United States is, again, we don't really want to have the conversation, so it's always there, but it's just below the surface. Um, could I share with you uh, just a few of the statistics which I think would help your audience understand the dynamics and the, the scope of the problem? Sure, please do. Thank you. So, what is generally accepted at the moment is that about one in six boys, so about 16% up to about 25% of boys are abused before they're 18 years old. And for girls, it's about a third, uh, 25 to 33% of girls are abused. But we know that those numbers are actually low because most people, many people do not report their abuse. Um, I will say that I have friends and relatives, about two dozen of them, that were abused when they were children, and none of them, to my knowledge, have ever reported to a uh, statistic building organization or, uh, you know, a uh, a law enforcement group, for example. So we know that those numbers are probably really underreported, and and so what it says is that this is a really big problem in our society. But again, it's it's like sex trafficking, which is a, a part of this problem. Uh, it's there, but people don't want to see it or they don't talk about it. The average age Or they is don't about see it as part of old. their lives and their existences. That that may well be true. Um, I think there's a – I think as adults, sometimes what we do is we – it's kind of the, the, the turtle or the ostrich thing. You put your head in the sand, and if you don't see it, the problem really doesn't exist or isn't really that bad. 
And one of my goals and the organizational goals from Restore Hope is to bring this out so that people are aware that it is a much bigger problem than some people believe. So, as I said, um, about 10, at the age of 10 is the average age for both both boys and girls when they're abused the first time. Uh, 20% uh, under age 8 are abused, which is just terrific. That just breaks my heart. <laughs> you know, we, we think of this as a problem of, you know, um, mid-adolescence and maybe teen years, but no, it goes from zero to 18, and it's just, the numbers are just appalling and horrific. I mean, I just don't know any other way to describe them. Um, 90% of those that are abused know their abuser. So, you know, we have this misnomer in our society that stranger danger, you know, which we oh, talked gotcha. about about 10 years ago. Is, is a big thing and be careful. And that does occur. It absolutely does occur. But more often than not, 90% of the time, the person that abuses the child is someone that's known to not only the child but to the family members. So what that says is, is that we have to, as a society, do our due diligence when it comes to any person that children are around, making sure that they're safe. And unfortunately, there is no profile for a perpetrator of child sexual abuse. And People like to think that, you know, someone, Uncle Billy is, oh, of course, Uncle Billy is safe. Well, maybe he is, maybe he isn't, but you really need to draw some boundaries for the children and, and educate them as to what's acceptable and what's not acceptable. Uh, it's, it's, it's a bigger problem and a, a more complex problem than we often give it credit to. You know, most kids these days are on the Internet. Um, we grew up, I think, in a generation where, you know, we didn't have the Internet, but, you know, now there is, everyone's got their portable electronic devices. One in five or 20% of teens have admitted being solicited or approached on the Internet for sex. Uh, and that's that's a huge problem as well. It really is. Yeah. 70% of all sexual assaults, uh, of all sexual assaults, um, occur for women before the age of 17. So, um and that's that's women and children. So, I mean, that's that's a huge number. And women are two to three times more likely to be assaulted later in life if they're a victim of child sexual abuse. So it kind of opens a door, uh, as it were, or a window for other abusers to, to take advantage. And so that's something that your audience should be aware of, and it's something that we really need to address as a society. You know, one of the big concerns about reporting child sexual abuse is what happens if I'm wrong? And that's a legitimate concern because, you know, you don't want to label someone as a child abuser uh, when it's not, that's not the case. But I will tell you that children reporting child sexual abuse, uh, it's less than 10% and more in the range of about, you know, 2 to 4% of reports are false. So that means that over 90% of reports from children are true. So if a child discloses to you or someone that you know, the response needs to be that you tell them that you believe them and that you will listen to them really carefully because I will tell you that the re-victimization takes place when, when people are questioned or not believed and then they're less likely to disclose to other people or talk about future abuse. Um, about a quarter of the abuse happens from family members, and that's appalling. And I think that number is also low. I think it's actually more than that. What we have found is that when the younger children, like six and younger, um, more often than not, it's going to be an adolescent that's going to do the abuse, and oftentimes it's going to be a brother or a sibling or a cousin or someone like that. So that's a big problem. Um, and something wow, else so is, I didn't think of, I thought of stepfathers a lot, you know, as, as perpetrators. Uh, and you're, But you're saying actually older siblings or cousins. Yes. Yes, and and you know I, I hate this is this is the other part that's really ugly about this Heather is that the relatives it, it tends to be perpetrators tend to be males more often than not and it's almost always an older male uh, than what the child is but it can be a father it can be a stepfather it could be a grandfather uncles cousins or older you know male siblings it could be brothers and I've talked to survivors that pretty much fall into most if not all of those categories. It can also be a mother's boyfriend. It could be a friend of the family. It could be the neighbor. It could be a babysitter. And and as we probably know uh, by watching the news these days, it could be a trusted authority figure, whether that's a coach or a clergy member or a faculty member at school or uh, or an organizational leader. It's there. As I said earlier, there is no 
uh, profile for perpetrators. And some of the ones that you would least think of as as perpetrators actually are. You may remember the Jerry Sandusky case from 2012 from Penn State where he was the assistant football coach of the you know winningest program in the NCAA. And, it, and he had a nonprofit called The Second Mile where he was helping troubled boys, but he was also abusing 10 boys over a 15-year period, some of them in the locker room at Penn State. So you can't we can't make a blanket assumption that certain people are safe. Unfortunately, we have to, you can't not have some trust because that's not healthy, but you really have to do your due diligence to make sure that the children that you interact with and that that are your children. And we believe everyone's children uh, are protected by just watching for grooming and watching for other activities that are just unsafe, like crossing over boundaries. You know, Eric, when my my children were growing up, they're adults now, but when they were growing up, I got a lot of flack from my friends um, for being overly protective. I think that was the terminology. I didn't feel I was being overly protective. I felt that I was being vigilant, super vigilant. Um, I had had an experience where I worked with uh, a county probation department, and uh, I had training in uh, uh, sexual assault and what to look for and the statistics about it, and my children were never left alone with anyone, anyone. Um, And some of that was because I didn't have a lot of family around, but if my children were supposed to go somewhere and be at something, I uh, I became the the Cub Scout leader, or I became the one that was you know supervising or whatever. I I can count on one hand the number of times that my children were left with another adult alone without my being there. And if I had to go leave them, you know, if I if I had to have a babysitter, I would tell the babysitter I'd be back in two hours, and I'd come back in thirty five minutes. I mean, I was terrible. I, I was just absolutely terrible. But I thought, you know, these, who knows? You know, I mean, people fool people all the time. And I know I sound, I sound paranoid about that, but, you know, I mean, these are your children, you know? <laughs> you, you, well, no, you're absolutely right, Heather. And frankly, what you were explaining was, and you didn't know it at the time, those are best practices for keeping children safe. Because what what we talk about, there's an organization that we partner with called Darkness to Light. It's a national nonprofit based in South Carolina, and they do a child sexual abuse prevention training um, that we're facilitators for. And one of the things that they teach is adults to not allow children to be in isolated one-on-one situations, whether that's you know with a babysitter or you know if they go if they have to go to the bathroom at school or. They're at a church event uh, and, and things like that. You, know, you shouldn't have two people alone in a tent, for example. So, that yeah, you actually nailed that right on the head. And the other part about coming back at unexpected times to just kind of check in, that's a, that's a wonderful practice, and that's something that is, is recommended as well. Um, the unfortunate thing is that in today's world, and, and it, it isn't just today's world, it's happened in the past, I think we are finally starting to have this conversation. But it, it is, it's a problem that's been going on for a long time, and it's something that we need to really talk about and take out and hold, bring it into the light of day, literally, and, and to have this discussion like we did with cancer 100 years ago or with AIDS, you know, 20, 30 years ago. Uh, it's so important, and it affects the ripple effect of one child, I think, can easily be missed. I mean, we don't know. You know, it's cliche to say that person could grow up to be the president of the United States. But there are so many other roles in our society that, that children can play. They are the next generation that's going to be leading, having leadership roles in our country. And if they are abused, the odds are of them being having a robust and really powerful effect on our society are greatly diminished. So the ripple effect is huge to our society, but it's also huge to family members, friends, because it changes them forever. We've talked about their internal wiring can get changed. Uh, it, it's just such a dramatic thing. And then it's a, it's, I like to say that people are not like light switches. It's a long process to, to heal and to recover from child sexual abuse. You have to keep kind of toggling that light switch off and on, back and forth, to develop new strategies and better ways to deal with living. And the best practice is to keep children safe in the first place and never have them be abused. It's such a benefit to the child. It's such a benefit to the family. And by extension, it's such a benefit to our society. 
Well, and I think that I don't know about um, um, the statistics, but it seems to me that a lot of adult vic- that, that were victimized as children don't talk about it. I, I mean, we kind of alluded to this when we started. In our culture, we really we we have kind of an approach avoidance conflict to this kind of trauma. We want to hear all the little salacious details so that we can feel all empathetic, but we only want to hear it once, and we want the person to get over it really quick and not bother us again. The, am I oversimplifying this? I mean, this is what I I can see with a number of different issues like this. Um, culturally, there's not a lot of support socially. There's not a lot of support for somebody talking about this. Um, I, I have one friend who was sexually abused, and really she was almost 40 before she actually addressed the issue. And then she spent several years trying to work through it. And everything. And so many of our mutual friends were, oh, for heaven's sake, that happened years ago. What she, She's obsessing. She needs to get over this. She needs to move on. She needs to forgive and move, you know. And I thought, how do you know? You know, how do you know what she needs? Um, and... Yes, it happened decades ago, but it didn't really click with her. It didn't really, she wasn't ready to address it until she was almost 40. So who are you yeah. to tell her that now, you know, when she's 42, she has to let it go? Um, that's a, a, a shaping factor in her life. I mean, and, and I've seen this with a lot of things. I, you know, people married 25 years, they divorce, or there's abuse or whatever. Well, you need to let that go. You need to let that Th- That was such a huge chunk of your life. How do you just let go a piece of your life that shaped all the rest of your life. I mean, that makes no sense to me. Socially, are we seeing these kinds of of uh, pressures on victims of childhood sexual assault? Yes. I, you know, it, it's a situation where um, yeah, I'm going to use an analogy with grief. So I, I was meeting with someone yesterday, and we were talking about he, he lost his 19-year-old son to murder. And he was talking with a counselor, and the counselor said, "You need to have your grief over in eighteen months. If you're if you oh. are still grieving after eighteen months, you've got a mental There's illness. There's something wrong with you. Yeah. There's something wrong with you. And on top of that, by the way, the the trial wasn't hadn't didn't hadn't even happened yet. It wasn't going to happen for eighteen months. So he couldn't even do to try to work on the closure because the case was still pending. Um, artificial timelines like that don't work, and Anything that is truly traumatic, such as that, someone losing your son like that to a horrendous murder, and it was it was an, it had national attention for a while. Um, losing a loved one, I just lost my mother earlier this year, and so I'm still coping and dealing with that. But also, you lose part of yourself. Um, I like to maybe explain a little bit what it feels like to a, a female or a male survivor. A, the perpetrator literally steals from them, meaning their first sexual experience, that they will never get again, that it was theirs. They had the right to explore and choose the timing and you know the, the partner that they wanted to engage with. That was stolen from them, and they will never get it back. And it's not something like you can go back, you know, do-over. You know, we can't do a do-over when it comes to having your sexual identity and your sexual first experience stolen from you. That has life-changing and long-term, really lifelong consequences. And so it really, people don't understand that you can't just move on because um, what many people do, and I've done this as a survivor, is you kind of stuff it. Okay, I'll deal with it later. You know, I'm really busy in life right now and things are going okay. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stuff it. But what happens is two things. One, it keeps coming up, and sometimes not at very good times. It's, you know, it's inappropriate times when it comes up. You hit a trauma trigger or a memory pops up. The other thing that can happen is, is that it, will, it affects your ability to function. Uh, it's like having a toxin stuck inside of you. But, so let's, let's say you've got a sliver, and it, you know, most slivers will fester if you leave them in there long enough because they want to find a way to get out. And if you don't get that sliver out of there, then it can become infected, it can become kind of pussy and, you know, really nasty, and it can have really bad effects on your life, not only physically, but also in the case of child sexual abuse, mentally and emotionally. And so you really need to, what I've found in healing is you really need to talk about it. You need to find a mechanism of healing. And I believe that um, talking to a, a counselor or a therapist is probably very helpful, and I've done that. 
But I also think that you need to find what works for you. In my case, it was writing about it and speaking about it. But some people, it may be the expressive arts. It may be talking. It may be doing yoga. It might be doing dance. It could be doing drama. It could be doing calligraphy or just doodling. Find something that works, and, and that kind of helps draw it out of you. Something else that I found works really well, a digital story about your abuse. Because what happens is you have the power over what you say and how you create that story, whereas in the abuse situation, you had no power whatsoever. You were totally a victim, and you were totally controlled. So um, finding a way to reconnect your mind and your body is so important, and it doesn't happen overnight. So, you know, this artificial timeline, well, I want you to be over the death of your son in 18 months, or you're sick, that doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Well, and I think people get that from their friends as well. You know, I mean, uh, talking to a friend of mine who who went through an abusive, who uh, divorced from an abusive husband, she went through custody battle, horrific, horrific stuff. And it's three or four years later, and a mutual friend is saying, oh, for God's sake, there's something wrong with her. She just can't let that go. She won't let that go. And I'm going, she was married for 20 years. You expect her to just let it go? You know, it's going to take her as long as it takes her, you know, to, to work through it. Um, yes. And maybe she'll never totally work through it. You know, maybe she'll just learn to work around it. But we we seem to be so focused on getting people to move past everything, move past everything. And sometimes what we've lived through, we don't. It's not best for us to move past it. Sometimes we have to work it through um, for however long that takes. That's that's my psych, well, my fifty cents, uh, uh, Lucy. You know, five cent yeah. psychological advice. <laughs> yes, thing for yes. today. No, but, <laughs> but I, I, I think, think you're we, spot on. We, Go ahead. We we lose such patience with people. We don't have the patience to allow them to work through these kinds of things. And so I think that the upshot of all of that is that when people have these kinds of things to deal with, not only does it become a trauma to deal with, but it also becomes a secret that they need to keep. Yes, and and that's why many people don't disclose their abuse of both genders, as they don't know how they're going to be accepted. Are they going to be accepted? And how are they going to be received by their loved ones, by their family members? Uh, There are cases where family members will completely ostracize the victim and support the perpetrator. In the case of, say, maybe it's a father. And, you know, you don't know. There's a lot of fear. And, And the other piece of this that we haven't talked about but is so important is both genders feel a high degree of guilt, guilt and shame over their abuse. They internalize the, the feeling that they were in some way. Um, if your audience and you are familiar with the movie Good Will Hunting with Robin Williams, um, yes. it, it's got a scene in there, which I actually use in some presentations that we do, that where uh, Robin Williams is talking to Will, uh, Matt Damon, about how it's not your fault. And if you watch the progression in that scene, Matt Damon starts out as this cocky, you know, kid who says, oh, yeah, I know, it's not my fault, I got it. But by the end, he's just, he's a wreck. Uh, he's, he's crying, he's bawling in Robin Williams' arms. And what it points out is, is that we can intellectually know as adults that, you know, we didn't, we didn't invite the abuse, we didn't want it, it was unwelcomed. Uh, we couldn't stop it, but there's a part of us, especially when you're a male, because in our society today, males are expected to always be in control. They're always expected to be uh, not only in control of their bodies, but also their minds. They're always, they're just, they're meant to be, um, you know, there's not any ambiguity there. You're supposed to be macho and you're supposed to be in control. But you ask yourself, how did this actually happen? Or what did I really want it? Or, you know, you have some gender confusion that is created for a period of time or for a long period of time. Uh, you know, am I gay? Am I, you know, am I lesbian? Am I heterosexual? What exactly am I? Because you've had this experience. So it's so complex for survivors to process through all of this. Um, and, and that's why I think you need therapeutic support to do it. But you certainly need to do it in community. Um, I believe that it takes community to help heal uh, survivors, and it's so important. When you important say community, you mean people who know. Are, are you talk, when you say community? Are you talking about um, other survivors? Are you talking about people who are have had similar experiences? Are you ta- what are you talking about when you say community? In the short term, I'm talking about other survivors, and I'm talking about people that know about this 
this situation, you know, know what it is to be sexually abused. Um, And in the long run, as I said, our goal at Restore Hope and also my personal goal is to bring it to a place of acceptance in our society where people understand that, one, the survivor, first the victim, and then you become a survivor in my mind because you have to embrace healing to do that. Uh, When you get to that point, you're celebrated because, you, one, you have survived the abuse physically and mentally, which is huge. But you also yeah. are um, you're, you're at a place where you, you deserve to be celebrated for everything that you're doing. And, and many people that are survivors will become what, what can be called a warrior survivor, which means they go out and they try to advocate for themselves and for other survivors. And just like on the Relay for Life, where the cancer survivors go out and relay for themselves and for other survivors, that's where we need to be in our society. We're not there yet, but we are. Conversations like this are so important because they're leading us in that direction. Is it because it involves sexual activity that we we want to not talk about this as a culture? I think that's a part of it. Um, I, I think there are some real implications and ramifications for our society it's much more widespread than most people acknowledge or believe and and it's right there but it's right under the surface it it does involve the topic of sex which makes some people very uncomfortable to talk about and it also is a situation where um, the the fallout or the the outcomes for the survivors and, and by extension society are not good and so people tend to not want to talk about the bad things or the negative things in our society. They want to focus on something, you know, the, that's why the, the news has moved, gravitated away from just news to, they, they always have the positive story during the newscast now. People want yeah. to see some of the positive in society. And that's good uh, because we do need to not just focus on the negative, but we, in doing so, it, you can diminish the, the problem or undervalue the effect of the problem in our society, and then it just takes longer for it to get addressed. So I think it's really a combination of those three factors. Okay. So um, we we glanced on this, but I want to bring bring go back to this. Who are the perpetrators? Who are the people that do this to children? So, again, perpetrators can be, they tend to be older males, and they can be adolescents. Uh, so you could have... Again, remember the average age for the first experience of child sexual abuse is age 10. So you could have a 14-year-old brother who is perpetrating. Um, You could have uh, a neighbor. So you you could have everybody. But something we haven't talked about yet is that females are also perpetrators of child sexual abuse. You're hearing more and more in the news these days about teachers that are taking their male students or sometimes female students, depending on their gender, uh, you know, into their homes, into classrooms, into motels, and having sex with them. And it's, it's, it's different. Female-on-male abuse, for example, has different dynamics. Uh, our society tends to not view that as abuse. They think, oh, well, boy, that 16-year-old boy just got really lucky, you know, because he, he was with his Yeah, teacher. I was going to say they high-five the kid. Exactly, exactly. Uh, and, and unfortunately, that's not the case. So on the outside... The, you know, the boy is saying, oh, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm really great, I'm macho, and you know, look what I did. On the inside, he is so conflicted and so broken by the incident um, in one of two ways. Either he's just, just totally conflicted by it, or he becomes very confused by the grooming part of it and believes that there actually is a romantic, uh, you know, love relationship there. And then when, when it invariably falls apart for a number of reasons, uh, he has to grapple with that. So, and, and it happens for females too. You know, female victims of male students. Uh, I'm sorry, male teachers. Um, they have the same dynamics because oftentimes the teachers will use a romantic approach to the grooming process, which we should probably talk about. You know, in this hour, um, to get you know yes, what they want. Well, let's focus a little bit on this grooming. I mean, we all have heard the term grooming, but what really does that involve, and how is it different between perpetrators? So, you know, we all know what grooming is to some extent. You know, we groom our hair or we might groom our children for a really good uh, Ivy League league school. But there's another type of grooming, and it's really insidious. And what it is is it's using manipulation, coercion, and um, strategies, basically, to induce a child to have sex with an older person. Again, usually it's a 
older male, but in not in all cases. And there are many techniques for doing that. One is the romantic approach, like I said, where you say you, you know, like in, in the case of the father, you know, I really, I really love you, and I, and you know, your mother just and I just are not getting along, and you know, I want to show you that my love. Um, that's one way that the child might be groomed. They also can be groomed um, through the use of pornography um, and, and drugs and alcohol, because what that does is it reduces or removes inhibitions that the child will have, and it makes initiating sexual activity a lot easier for the perpetrator. Uh, and they, and sometimes, you know, there's the issue of memory. There's the issue of – there's a lot of issues, you know, like, for example, the, the date rape issue where, where drugs are used. Uh, there's always that, well, it was consensual. Well, I don't really remember because I was drugged or I was high or I, you know, was, was uh, drinking. So that approach is used so by some perpetrators. perpetrators will use drugs and alcohol on, on children? Yes, they absolutely will, as, as well as viewing pornography because that stimulates the mind and, you know, the sexual interest, which is normal in, in human beings. Uh, and so they'll use that technique as well. Okay. It's yeah. It's it's really an insidious process, and and the, the you know they can also, for example, buy gifts. One thing that Jerry Sandusky would do was he would would take his boys to games. He would give them game tickets, or he would buy them gifts and bring things into them. You know, it could be like an iPad or something like that. The number of children that are groomed, and not all of them by any means, but some children are of lesser economic resources. And so getting these, these lavish gifts can mean a lot to them and to their parents. To the parents, it looks like, you know, this, this person, this, this older male authority figure, you know, is, is a mentor to my student, my, my, my child rather, and he's, you know, really great and he's, I just love having him in my life. Turns out parents and guardians can be kind of groomed as well because part of the process is the perpetrator wants everyone in the family to believe that he's a great guy, that he's there to help, you know, that he's, that he's, all his intentions are good. And unfortunately, in today's world, um, not everyone's intentions toward children are good and positive. Some of them are what you would even call evil. Uh, and, and in this case, I think that really applies where you sexually abuse yeah. a child of any age. Yeah. It doesn't matter if you're 17 years old or you're 10 years old at the average age the kids are first abused or even at one or two, and that, that happens too. So it's it's a very difficult topic for a lot of people to talk about, as we've said, but it's something we really have to as a society. Well, and I think that, you know, we have like 12 minutes left, so let's talk a little bit about, so what do we do about it? First of all, how do parents talk to their children? How do parents, you know, I mean, oh, okay, Uncle Joe really likes my kid, and Uncle Joe wants to take him to games, and Uncle Joe buys him gifts. That doesn't mean Uncle Joe's a, a, a pervert. That doesn't mean he's a sex offender. So how do I tell the difference, and what do I do about it? Well, you're, you're absolutely right, and that's one of the biggest challenges that we face as adults trying to keep children safe is knowing who the perpetrators are and who they are not. In some ways, it's a cliche. You can say, well, the, the person that's really the older male that's really gregarious and is really great with all the kids and everybody loves him, and he, you know, does all these fun things, that might be a person to watch. And there is something to that, but that's oversimplifying the problem because it could be anybody. I mean, it literally can be anybody that is a perpetrator. So your best practices really come down to, and this is something that, that we teach in Darkness to Light training, is to avoid isolated one-on-one -on -one situations with children, as, as you talked about with your kids when they were growing up. Try to make sure that they're not alone very long, if at all, with anybody, and then pop in unexpectedly to, to just kind of check and see if what was advertised by the babysitter, well, we're going to be doing this, is actually what's occurring, for example. Um, you want to make sure that you uh, draw appropriate boundaries for children so that um, I have a friend who was abused, and he, and he talks about how Uncle Billy, you know, it's common in the families for people to say, you know, go give Uncle Billy a hug, you know, go, go give him a hug. And, and you can tell the child doesn't really want you, but there's this uncomfortable dynamic within the family, and so the child ends up going to do it. Don't make the child do that. If they're uncomfortable doing something, uh, just say to Uncle Billy, you know, I, I think Joe's just not comfortable doing that. Um, you know, let's, let's try Let's go move on to do something else. So you set appropriate boundaries 
for kids to help keep them safe. And then um, another thing in the training that we, we talk about is eight is great. So at age eight, you want to have a conversation with your child about appropriate boundaries. So, for example, the areas that are covered by your bathing suit, those are private and personal and yours, and they should not be touched, even by, you know, mommy or daddy, unless there's a really good reason, like, you know, I'm applying medicine or I'm helping you wipe or something like that. That's okay. But just be really careful to, you know, to not let people touch you in your private areas um, because, what they talk about is that on, in the playground at about fifth or sixth grade is when kids start talking about sex. And you would probably, as a parent, much rather have you be the one to talk about sex with your kid and give them correct information and answer their questions than have a bunch of adolescents on the, the playground talk about sex because, you know, that you, we, know we all kind of know where that can go. So yeah. those are three, three things that you can do that can really kind of keep your kids safe. And then you need to, I think, pay attention to your inner warning voice. Uh, people call it a lot of things there on the back of your neck, uh, you know, your intuition, your gut feeling. Listen to those because I've, I've heard case after case of, you know, I had a really bad feeling about that guy, but I talked myself out of it. But you know what? He was abusing my child. Don't let yourself be talked out of it. That's a really good – it's not a formal – way of doing it, but it actually works pretty well, is to listen to your inner warning voice uh, in regards to somebody. And then if you're getting that voice about that person, pay really close attention to what's happening between them and your child, because you don't know, uh, just just a very short period of time, something can happen, just an isolated, you know, 5 or 10, 15 minutes, something can happen, and you just want to make sure that your child is always kept safe. Um, one of the things that I noticed as a parent and as an older adult now uh, watching other parents, parents don't necessarily, I mean, I, I have a, a friend and her small children are allowed to just wander around the park. Um, and sometimes I, I, I don't understand that. I, I, to me, if my eyes were not on my children, I had to get my eyes on my children. I mean, I didn't have to be standing next to them, but if they were on the playground or something, I had to be looking at the playground and see my kid. And if I didn't see my kid, I'd start looking for my kid until I did see them. Yeah. Um, and I, I see so many people being so casual with the presence of their children or assuming that because they're a certain age, they know better. They will know. They will know. Children are children. Their brains aren't even fully developed, as you said, until they're like 25. They don't know. Just because you've told them. I mean, I read a study once that you can't even trust a child to cross the street, to look both ways before crossing the street, mm-hmm. until they're 12. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we, and that, we makes, teach that them, makes perfect sense. You know, we teach them, of course we tell them, and, and look at texting for teenagers. There isn't a teenager alive who won't tell you that, yes, it's terrible to text, and no, I don't do it when I'm driving. Um, and yet study after study shows that they do. They do. They're just yep. not, you know, I mean, so with an issue like this, you know, to, for us to assume that our children can handle situations like that or that they know situations like that, I think that we just really, as parents, put a lot of, of faith where it doesn't necessarily belong. Am I wrong about that one? No, I think you're absolutely right. Um, you know, we, with your children or grandchildren, you should probably send your someone, your husband, for example, or go yourself with the child until they're pretty old to the restroom just to make sure that everything is okay because children go missing every year. And one of the places that they end up going is they get trafficked on the street. They get either kidnapped or they run away and then they get trapped in, in trafficking. So you have to be really vigilant. Uh, um, diligent, rather, with your your kids to make sure that they are safe because most people feel like, you know, oh, that's never going to happen to me because I could protect myself or I'm going to stop it. And that's a real strong feeling with males. And it's a real shock when, guess what, that doesn't happen. Another part of grooming that we didn't talk about yet is that the, the perpetrator can actually threaten the victim. You know, if you tell somebody, I'm going to hurt you or I'm going to hurt your mother or your father, I'm going to kill them. You know, say you're dealing with a 10-year-old child, how are they going to process that? You know, what are they going to do? Are they going to tell somebody, a trusted adult? Because that's what you want your kids to know is that even if you don't tell your parents, tell the trusted adult if something is going on or you suspect something is about to go on. Um, But, you know, if, if you're being physically threatened, how does a child process that? Even if 
they haven't had any sexual trauma yet, that's still, that in itself is very traumatizing. Something I did want to mention, um, which is really shocking, but 70% of offenders will have between one and nine victims in their lifetime. 20% have 10 to 40 victims. So when you protect, this is something that we need to think about as society. When you protect a child, when you make a report and you're concerned about how do I make a report, uh, and you can find some information on the Restore, uh, Restore Hope website, RestoreTheirHope.com, um, you are not only protecting the child that you're thinking about, but probably many other children as well. Uh, because most perpetrators don't have just one victim. There is one other thing I wanted to mention, too, before we run out of time, because I know we're getting close, is there is a misperception out there that if you were abused as a child, you will become an abuser or a perpetrator, and that is just not the case. The statistics, the research is showing now that it's about the same level of society as those that were never victims will become perpetrators. Uh, in a meta-analysis, which is a, a big pooling of studies that were done, the rate was only 22% of those abused will become abusers. So that's a, that's a way that a lot of uh, um, survivors become re-victimized is by society, by individuals assuming that they're going to become a perpetrator if they were abused. Um, and it's something that we really need to, to work on as a society because it just is not the case. As a matter of fact, I think some survivors are much more protective of children and much more aware than, than the general populace is. That's been my experience. That, that's what I've seen. Um, so because they're aware, they understand what can happen. Um, what about resources? We've, we've kind of talked about the perpetrators. We've talked about the prevalence. What about resources for people who have either suspect of child abuse is going on or have experienced it themselves? And there are quite a few resources out there, and that's the good news. Um, there are government websites that you can go to. Uh, I, I even found the Humane Society of the United States has some information on child sexual abuse, which is interesting. But RestoreTheirHope.com, which is our website for Restore Hope. There's Darkness to Light, which is, uh, again, a national nonprofit. Um, there's uh, Rain, which is, uh, see, I think their site is Rain uh, with two N's. So R-A-I-N-N dot org, which is really good. And if you're on, on the male side, there are some survivor tools that are specifically geared towards males because males have, as we've talked about, some unique dynamics that go with their abuse. Malesurvivor.org is a really good site, as is one in six dot org. So those are good sites as well. So just doing a, a typical um you know, browser search will give you some really good resources that you can look at. Uh, there's some academic studies. There's some really good books that are that are out there, uh, written by clinicians and therapists, and written by some survivors. Uh, I wish there were more by survivors, but I'm working on that. And uh, you know, just take a, take a look into the subject, and you'll learn that it really, you know, we think of this as sex trafficking. There's a lot of things below the surface, but the whole subject area of child sexual abuse, child assault. Is, is just, it's huge. The dynamics are much more uh, appalling and dynamic than people give credit to. And you know, we, as a society I, we need to do. I, I want to real quickly go to a caller, Eric. Um, okay. Uh, caller, are you there? Caller, are you there? Okay. We don't have our caller there. Sorry about that. Um, sorry, I didn't get a chance to get to you earlier, caller. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think what's really important for people is to realize that there are resources out there no matter what where you find yourself in this um, and it's important to find those resources because this is not the kind of thing despite what our culture likes to say about buck up and handle this and get over it um, things don't work that smoothly you don't have to make it your life's work um, you don't have to make it your life's mission you don't have to make it your life ex uh, shaping experience but you need to understand how significant um, some of these life experiences can be in shaping your family, uh, your own life, as well as your family's lives. And so that's my little uh, layperson advice here is uh, don't be uh, bullied into thinking that somehow or other you have to just pull yourself up by your bootstraps and handle this and forget it. Um, sometimes things need to be examined and put in a place before they can be uh, dealt with properly. Am I right on that, Eric? 
Yes, you absolutely are, and I commend you and your audience for being here today and doing this topic. It's a difficult one to talk about, but it's so important, and it affects so many lives. All right. I end the show with a quote, and the quote today is a brief one. Childhood should be carefree, playing in the sun, not living a nightmare in the darkness of the soul. And that's from David Pelzer, the author of the book It. Thank you for joining us, Three Women in Three Ways. Thank you, Eric, for joining us and with your knowledge.